We're going to be in the book of John this morning, John chapter 3, and uh, once you find it, let's go ahead and stand. Uh, We're just going to read one verse this morning, and it may be a verse you've heard before, um, maybe. It's an obscure verse, John 3.16, maybe you've heard that one, Uh, very commonly known, and as I tried to figure out what, what the Lord would have me to bring today, it was hard not to just park on John 3.16. So we're going to look here, and really we could probably park on this verse for, uh, for weeks, and never mind the depths of a verse like this one. And so let's just read it. I'd like to read it out loud uh, together, uh, John 3.16. If you need to look at the words, you can. If you can quote it, that's fine as well. Uh, but I'd like to say it together this morning, and uh, John 3.16. Ready? Begin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay, I'm just going to have you do it. Ready? Begin. It's the gospel in a nutshell. I mean, everything we need to know about, about our condition, God's love, what is required of us to not perish but have everlasting life is written there in 25 words. And I'm thankful for it. And uh, this morning I just want to preach about how God, God gave his best. And we certainly don't deserve it. But God gave his best. Father, I thank you for... For the word, I thank you for the truth. And Lord, if we had nothing else this morning to do, we've done enough by reading your word and reading these, this great truth. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to convey what's on my heart and what was on your heart. Forgive me for the ways I failed you and for the times that, I mean, you've given your best to me and I I don't give my best in return, and I'm sorry. This morning, I pray that you'd help us to get a glimpse of what God gave to us, what you gave in your son, and what, what it changes for us. We love you, and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. During the, uh, during the 2011-2012 playoffs in the NFL, the Denver Broncos, some of you Denver Broncos fans in here, you're welcome to say amen. It might be the only amen you, you, you give this whole message, but if you're a Broncos fan, maybe that you remember this, maybe many of you do. Um, if even not a Broncos fan, there was a quarterback named Tim Tebow. And Tim Tebow was famous as a Heisman winning quarterback at the University of Florida. He's a great college player. Um, and at the same time, he was also an outspoken Christian. And what I appreciate, I mean, he's not perfect and he's not, he's not maybe not even just like we are, but, but Tim Tebow had a testimony for Jesus Christ. And, and honestly, he's almost just as known about being a Christian as he was about being a football player, which I think um, there have been a lot that could learn from the way Tim Tebow did things. And if you followed him, then you know his testimony for Christ and when he made a roster in the NFL, I mean, he wasn't, uh, they didn't predict him to be a great um, NFL player. He was very good in college, 
Um, but he found himself that year in the 2011-2012 playoffs, he found himself starting um, in the playoffs for the Broncos. And when he did, because of who he was and his fame in college and his testimony, all eyes were on him. And in a game against the Steelers in those playoffs that year, um, it caught the attention of many, and, and you'll start to notice a pattern in the numbers, when he passed for 316 yards in an overtime victory against the Steelers. Not only that, people couldn't really stop talking about the fact that his average completion that game was 31.6 yards. I looked these stats up earlier. I can verify because they're on the internet. So not only that, even more coincidentally, the last 15 minutes of that game, the TV ratings and viewers, viewership was 31.6. I don't know exactly what that means, but I think you see the pattern, those numbers, 316, were the topic of conversation because in 2009, when Tim Tebow went to the national championship game against the team that I root for, Oklahoma, and beat them in that game, he had written on, on his face, black face paint, John 316. And from what I understand, and, and again, this is documented, that that night, 90 million Google searches for John 316 took place as a result of Tim Tebow's face paint. I mean, and, and I, I don't know, whatever else Tim Tebow does in his life, um, in that moment, he was a witness for Jesus Christ. And I would say that there are, there's a lot of coincidence involved in that. I don't know, you know, I don't read into a lot of those things. And Oh, it had to be God doing this. But it is an interesting story nonetheless. And the reason that it's talked about is because John 3.16 is perhaps the most famous and well-known verse in all the Bible. And people have been displaying John 3.16 on signs at sporting events for decades, I mean, it's one of the first verses that many children commit to memory. One of the first that we taught our children of that one, along with children obey your parents in the Lord. And John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. Those two are very common. And 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 you ask, well, why? Why why such why such attention on one verse? Well, John three sixteen it gives a twenty five word summary of some of the most important truths in all the Bible. There's so much included in this one verse because it confronts mankind with the matter of eternity. And it leaves us in a position in which we must choose between two futures. It says there are those that perish, that the world is perishing, that that's our condition, it's our present state. To perish means spiritual death and eternal separation from God forever. And the Bible, I'm not, this is not my words, this is what the Bible teaches, it's in a literal place called hell. That's perishing. But it also says, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So on one side you have the option, perish, or you have the other option of everlasting life, which means life with God forever. And when you die, when your life is over, this verse makes it very clear and forces you to answer or be confronted with the question, do you want to perish or do you want to live with God forever? And if that sounds sobering, it is. It's the most important choice that you'll ever make. But understand, the choice is yours. You are perishing, the Bible says, but you can choose to have eternal life. 
And last week we started the foundation, we started building the foundation for this truth. We saw how Jesus, this is a conversation. If you notice in your Bible, at least it is in mine that the words are in red. These are the words of Jesus Christ. And he's having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus who has come to him and wants to know more about him. And he's told Nicodemus that you must be born again. Except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. We looked at that last week. And, and Jesus makes it clear to Nicodemus that a person must be born again. And that word again means anew a, a or from above. And so it means to be reborn from above. Not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, what he says is you have an, a, a first birth, your physical birth, but that one birth is not enough to have eternal life. And we've all been born once. If you're in here, you were born once. You have a birth date. Mine is September 30th, 1977. I'm 46 years old. And that date is set in stone. That date is on my birth certificate. That date will one day be on my tombstone. It's on my driver's license. When I fill out forms online, I have to scroll down to the right year, and it takes me like 30 minutes now. 1977, where is it? Where is it? Just past the Civil War. Where are we going here? You have a birthday too. Some of you have to scroll longer than I do. Some of you were born this century, which is amazing to me. And hey, if you want to feel old, some of the people in this section right here were born after 2010. Who was born after 2010? Okay, put your hands down. Right. I mean... 2010 was like last year, right? And they're already sitting. I mean, it's just amazing how time flies. But you know, we all have a date of birth. That's our first birth. What, but what Jesus was telling Nicodemus in John 3 is, except a man is born again, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, the kingdom of God is, is not a physical kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom. It's a citizenship, and it means the same as having eternal life, that you can be in God's kingdom right now. You can, you can have eternal life right now, today, but Jesus says you must be born again. You have a physical birth, Nicodemus, and you know when that was, but there must be a time where you're born again. Listen, you have a physical birth. You likely, hopefully, know the date of that, but do you have a second birth? Do you have a spiritual birth? When was that? And, and, and you know when you were born physically because it's on a piece of paper, your parents told you, but when were you born spiritually? You don't have to know the date. I'm not saying that you have to remember every detail, but you ought to be able to look back on your life at a point in time and know that's when it happened. And many believe that salvation is a process. And this comes up more and more. But, but listen, if you read the New Testament, there are no examples of New, of New Testament salvation being a process over the course of time. No, it's always a point in time. The thief on the cross had a moment Paul, on the road to Damascus, had a moment where he saw Jesus Christ. Zacchaeus recognized his sin and came down out of the tree. He had a moment. The Philippian jailer had a moment, and him and his family were saved on the same night. And I'm asking you today, when was your moment? Being reborn from above takes place on a date and time like your physical birth. And I'm not saying again you have to know the date or the time. You may not have the details, but do you have a moment? 
And that's the conversation that Jesus Christ is having with Nicodemus. He explains that salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you can see happen. It's not a physical thing. No, eternal life must take place through the work of God, through the Spirit of God in our hearts. It is a spiritual transaction. And that's his message in a nutshell, in a nutshell to Nicodemus. And in verses 14 and 15 we come and, and he talks about how Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And when he lifted up the serpent in the wilderness because there were venomous snakes that were biting the people. And they had to by faith look to that serpent lifted up on the pole. And if they refused to do it then they, would, then they were judged for their sin. They had to come to the end of themselves and look. And he says, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life in verse 15. And a rebirth, listen, a rebirth takes place when you recognize that your sin has put you in the crosshairs of God's judgment. And you must humbly come to the end of yourself and look to Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. Jesus could end the conversation there. Honestly, wouldn't that be enough to know that eternal life is available and you can be in the kingdom of God and you can know that you have eternal life? It would be enough. It should be enough for us to know it's possible. But what I love about Jesus Christ here, what I love about his heart is he doesn't just want us to know the what, he wants us to know the why. Because he goes deeper and he says, here's why it's so important. Here's what happened to make eternal life, or here's what is happening to make eternal life available. And he tells Nicodemus, here's why, because of the immeasurable love of God. Because God loves you. Because God loves everybody. There are two very simple yet foundational truths that I want to look at this morning. You say, well, this is very simple and it will be, but I just want you to get the point here. The first point in this is that God loves people. This may not be new to you. You may have learned, heard this your whole life. Many of you have known about God's love from the time that you can remember anything. And as a child, you were singing, Jesus loves me. This I know. Jesus loves the little children. You've been singing those truths. You've known that your whole life. Some of you are just maybe learning this and this is your first time to really notice this. But the verse doesn't say people, it says the world. For God so loved the world. So what's the difference? Who does God actually love? Well, this book was written by the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus Christ's closest companions. His purpose for writing the book in John chapter 20 was that so all could, could read about the signs and play, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing have eternal life. Okay, so that's his stated purpose for the book of John. He wrote this gospel so that those who don't believe would read it and place their trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. So we can safely assume then, knowing that's John's stated purpose, that when he says the world, that he's writing to those who have yet to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. The world is his audience. Those who don't know Jesus Christ, those are the ones that he is writing for. Those that haven't been born again. Those who haven't bothered to seek God. Those that don't care about God. John 3.16, in John 3.16 it makes it clear that God loves those who don't love him. God loves those who don't care about him. God loves those who have never sought him in prayer. And that may leave some scratching your head because you've heard your whole life, well, God is a God of wrath and a God of judgment. You've heard of the wrath of God. 
And God is certainly a God of judgment. He judges sin. I mean, the Bible talks about the final judgment when you and I will all stand before God by ourselves with nobody else. We'll stand there before him and he will judge us. And as Christians, we'll be judged for our works. But if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he will judge you for your sins. God is a God of judgment. He does not ignore sin. He never turns away from it or pretends like it doesn't happen. And so people then knowing that maybe that's the kind of God they've heard about their whole life. They come to a verse like John 3.16 and they wonder, this, they say, this doesn't sound like the God I've heard about. Well, the answer is this. God feels anger towards sin and love towards sinners. See, if you're a parent, you know what that's like. When your children disappoint or disobey and, and you hate what they've done, but you love that little one so much, you can never not love them. The point Jesus is making is this. Even though the world is full of people that ignore God, full of people that openly defy God, people that don't care about God, he is angry about their sin, but he loves them dearly. He wants the people of the world to be at peace with him. I mean, throughout the Bible, uh, through, the, through his words, through the Gospels, like John, he gives the world a chance to hear the good news and receive it. This verse makes it clear that there are those that are ready to perish, and they're already headed down that path. Listen, you don't have to do something to make yourself start perishing. No, if you've ever sinned before God, and then you are perishing, the Bible says. But even those headed toward judgment have the same opportunity to be saved as anyone else. God created mankind in order to have fellowship with him. That's why he put Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, he wants a relationship, a fellowship with mankind. And even though mankind sinned and we disobeyed God, it doesn't change the fact that he's a God of love. And he has reason to be angry at our sin. He has reason to judge because he is holy. He has reason to judge because and show wrath because of, of those that have defied him. He is a just God. But listen, his view of sin doesn't change the fact that he is fundamentally, he loves people. He wants everyone in the world to have eternal life. To see the kingdom, to be saved. He wants you to spend eternity in heaven with him. And the fact that Jesus says the world, that means that nobody's excluded. There's nobody that doesn't fit under that category. And don't let certain theology convince you that God only loves certain people. And this idea that he only died for some, that his blood is limited to a few. No, you go to a verse like John 3.16. And I don't know how you come up with that conclusion reading a verse like John 3.16. You can have confidence that God loves the entire world to the exclusion of no one. Does this mean that God loves those who hate him? Yes. Does this mean that God uh, loves the rich and the poor the same? Yes. Does this mean that God loves men and women and children all alike? Yes. Does he love the newborn and the elderly the same? Yes. Does he love the weak and the broken just like he loves the strong? Yes, he does. Does he love the heathen as much as he loves the religious? Yes, he does. Does God love the educated and the same level as he loves the illiterate? Absolutely. 
Does he love those of every color? And the song we used to sing, red and yellow, black and white, Jesus loves the little children? Absolutely. He loves everyone from every continent in every color. Does God love the clean-cut businessman as much in the same way as he loves the addict under the bridge on the street? Absolutely he does. Does he love the thieves? Yes. Does he love the con, the con men? Yes. Does he love the prostitutes? Yes. Does he love the murderers? Yes. Does he love those who've engaged in sexual sin? Absolutely. What about those who've taken advantage of others and abused others? Absolutely. He loves the homosexual. He loves the mom who terminated a pregnancy. He loves the dad who left his family alone. He loves the greedy ones. He loves the selfish ones. He loves those of every religion, Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and Baptists and Presbyterians and Catholics and and Lutherans and atheists and the nuns who say I have no religion at all. Listen, if it fits under the category of the world or if it fits under the category of whosoever, you already know the answer. God loves you. Not just the religious. He loves the perishing. That's, he came to die for those perishing. Dying in their sin. Those who've never showed him respect. Those who've never sought him at all. Those who don't care about him. He loves them as much as he loved those of us who have followed him most of our lives. Why? Because God loves people. Which means God loves sinners. Which means God loves you. Now, there's one more, two more truths really. But the second is this. God proved his love for people by giving his son. See he gave his only begotten son that means his one and only so if you and I were saying something like you know that's that's the only thing that that's the only one he has I would say that's the one and only of this that he has I would emphasize that that's the language here you know there's so many things about this gift that we must acknowledge he didn't just love with words love is not just words love uh, is action he loves sinners by sending Jesus and this act of love is so immeasurable and, and so radical that we can't wrap our minds around it he so loved that he gave his one and only son think about your worst enemy in the whole world Think about the person that's wronged you the most or the person that's done the most wrong. Uh, they've, maybe they've they abused or they, they mistreated you or they, they did something to you or maybe they didn't do something to you personally but they've been, they're an evil person. And just somebody that you can think of that, that is not done right and they're, maybe you call them your worst enemy or somebody you can't imagine having a relationship with on any level. Now imagine that they have a terminal illness. And if they don't get a kidney or some organ, then they die and you're the only match. Would you be willing to give one of your kidneys for the person that has hurt you the most? It's a tough question. It'd be difficult. Well, that just begins to touch what God did for us. Now imagine this. On one hand, you've got the person that you love the most in the whole world. I don't know who that is, but you just put a face to it. The person you love the most in the whole world. And on the other side, you've got the person that is your greatest enemy or the person that has hurt you the most or the person that has done the most evil in the world. And you have the person that you love the most and the person that you might call your worst enemy. And you're in a position where you have to choose between them and only one can live. 
It's either the person that you love the most or the person that's your greatest enemy. And one, only one can live, the other one's going to die. And for most of us, that, that would be an easy decision. I mean, let's just be honest. Let's not be religious piety here this morning. Let's just be honest. It'd be a difficult decision. Imagine having to choose to sacrifice the person you love the most so that your enemy could go on living. Now you're closer to the choice that God made for sinners. It's unthinkable, it's unbelievable, it's radical, it's immeasurable. It would require love that can't be put into words and that's what God did for you. He spared not his only son for sinners like us, those who defy him, those who ignore him, those who mock him and hate him and reject him. Those are the ones he died for. And it was his only begotten son. In the Greek, that's the emphasis only begotten one of a kind and if you're to grasp the intensity of God's love look no further than the only begotten the one and only son God is a triune God he is God the father God the son God the Holy Spirit it's we can't wrap our mind around how it works he is one person but each personality fulfills a different function different role God the son the second person of the trinity he came to earth he is God but he came to earth earth as the expression of God in human form and it is impossible for understand for us to understand what God the father felt for his son when he sent him to earth but the best illustration we have is to understand a father's love for his only son and listen I know that every son matters but when you have only one it's the closest that we can get to understanding what God did for us I only have I have one son my son is Jace, he's a junior. He has my name. He's, he's my mini-me. He's my Menards buddy. When the women are all, you know, oh, we go to Menards, that's what we do. I love, and we have a dog, and our dog's a, a female too. I don't understand what we were thinking, but no, I love him with all my heart. I love Jace. We, if someone asked me to give him up for my worst enemy, I don't think I could. And that may disappoint you, but I'm just trying to be honest. I'm a human just like you are. But that's what God did for me. And that's what God did for you. And if you can understand the level of love, the magnitude of that gift, just consider a father giving up his only son for his worst enemy. And God sent his son to die on a cross for perishing sinners. For the sins of all mankind... The same people that stood and spit on him at the base of that cross, they mocked him. He was dying for them. And if you ever wondered about the love of God, look no further than his son on the cross. But God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love, it, it, it was proven when he sent his son. And he died for the sins of, of those perishing. Sinners, perishing, those who had hated and rejected him, he paid their debt. Listen, that's the love of God. God loves people and he proved it by sending his son. And the application is, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you believe, you have eternal life. It doesn't say those who keep his commandments. It says those who believe. And it doesn't say those who are religious. It says the whosoever believeth. 
It doesn't say anything about good works. It doesn't say anything about baptism. It doesn't say anything about reading the Bible. It doesn't say anything about even going to church. And I ought to be interested in that. But it doesn't say that. No, it says whosoever believeth. We've already covered this in John. It's not just head belief. It's a matter of the will. That you choose to entrust your eternity to Jesus Christ. To say, I have no other options as a sinner, a perishing sinner. Jesus Christ died for my sins. And not only did he die, but he rose again. And I choose to trust in his finished work. You cannot earn God's approval. You can receive it as a gift. Genuine faith, genuine belief in Jesus Christ. You're already perishing. Sin guarantees that. So rejecting Christ doesn't start the perishing process. You're already there. No, receiving, trusting Christ stops the perishing process and gives you eternal life. Friend, the choice is yours this morning. And here's the truth I want to just kind of send you away with. When we were at our worst, God gave us his best. The Father sent Jesus to die on a cross for perishing sinners. At our very worst, God gave his best. He didn't just love the Christians. He didn't just love the religious. He died for perishing sinners. He, God, he loved you at your worst, and he gave you his best. He gave his son. He offers eternal life. And I'm just asking, why wouldn't you, if you don't know that you have eternal life, why wouldn't you receive him? To the unsaved, you are choosing between perishing and having eternal life. And all it takes is genuine belief in Jesus Christ. Will you humble yourself and trust him today? I know this is largely the same group that was here last week. And, and you've already given that you're a test, your testimony of salvation. But this is next in the text. And I'm assuming God wants this preached for a reason. I'm assuming there's somebody here this morning that doesn't know that they have eternal life, that's never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, you can be born again today and continue, or, or you can continue down the path of perishing. And before you say, well, I'm not sure I can commit to that, I want to, he committed to you as a sinner. He gave his best to you at your worst. That's a gift you can't quantify. He gave his son for us at our worst. And so will you just ignore this perfect gift or will you humble yourself, look to Jesus and be saved? To the Christian this morning, I, I, the principle's the same. It's easy to receive the gift and then just know it's taken care of and just relax and live our lives. But if God can love you at your worst, he deserves you at your best. If God can love you at your worst, he deserves you at your best. He deserves your best effort to know him. He deserves your best effort to walk with him, your best commitment to his church, your best effort to live a life that pleases him. He's a holy God and he ought to have holy followers. He's a God that gives the very best gifts. He deserves the very best in return. And too many Christians receive the gift and then just coast along. But if he can love you at your worst, doesn't he deserve you at your best? Does a God who loved you at your worst have your best, Christian? Are you doing your best for God in every area of your life? Because that's what he deserves. And this morning I... 
You know, I know many of you know what has happened this week in the life of a family in our church and Isaac Steyer, member of our church, the husband of a young lady grew up in our church, Stephanie Collins Steyer, and he passed away this week. And tough circumstances. And, you know, just sitting with the family and talking to them and praying with them, you know, I, I, there is a, a, a sense of peace and grace that's evident in their lives. And their only reason that Stephanie can have hope right now is because Isaac, as a little boy, placed his trust in Jesus Christ for eternal, for eternal life, for salvation. Isaac recognized that God loves him. Isaac knew that Jesus sent him, Jesus was sent to prove it, and that all Isaac could do, all, all he could do was acknowledge his sin and place his trust in the finished work of Christ, and a four-year-old got it. My fear is that we've got 20-year-olds today that aren't getting it, or 30-year-olds, or 40, or 50, 70 have you placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ? See, that's what is giving Stephanie and Isaac's family, that's the only reason they have hope in the middle of this darkness. Because Isaac is free from his, his bonds. And they have hope that they'll see him again one day because as a four-year-old, he trusted in Jesus Christ to save him. And it, because God gave his best, we can have hope. And I wonder how many people who know about his best and have heard about the gift have said, no, I'll, I'll wait. No, I'll wait for another day. Or no, I don't need this. I can do good on my own. No, you need the gift. There's no way to heaven without Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Listen, this is a great gift and it's available to you this morning. And to the unsaved, will you trust him? Will you place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ this morning? To the Christian, I'm asking, when he was at your worst, he gave you his best. How's your Christian life in return? If it's marginal, nominal, peripheral, then you haven't done justice to the gift that God has given you. And it's time on both sides for the unsaved to recognize that God gave his best and place their trust in Jesus Christ. And at the same time for Christians to recognize God gave his best and he deserves the best from me. And I believe that every person has a decision to make based on John 3.16. Will you make it this morning? Let's stand together. Every head bowed. Every eye closed, and I just want to do, have a verse of invitation. We'll just have the piano play. I just want you to consider this morning that God gave his best to you. What have you done in return, Christian? What have you done? What have you given him in return? Is it second rate? Is it, is it your second best? Is it your leftovers? Because he gave you his very best, and he deserves your best. To the unsaved, do you know that if you died today that you'd be on your way to heaven? Is there anybody in here just with a simple raise of hand that say, I'm not sure that I've ever been born again. I don't know that there's a point in time in my life. Would you pray for me? Would you just raise your hand? Nobody else is looking around. Say, I just don't know for sure. 
that I have eternal life. Anybody this morning, I think largely the same group, but I don't want to make any assumptions. Anybody here this morning that would say, I don't know, would you pray for me, Pastor? So I'm assuming that everyone in here then has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, he gave you his very best when you were at your worst. Are you giving him your best in return? He deserves it. Let's pray and ask God to speak. Lord, we need you. We pray that you work in us this morning. I thank you for this verse and for the truth that it reminds us of. Lord, we pray for those that may not know you. I pray that you give them courage to make their faith, uh, place their faith in Jesus this morning. To the Christians, for the Christians, I pray that you give us courage to do our very best for a God who gave us his best at our worst. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.